First Peter chapter five. First Peter five. Today we conclude this great letter from the Apostle Peter, and there is just much depth in this conclusion that we will see today. Uh, Peter will once again, and we'll deal with this in the first point this morning, uh, touch on the theme of suffering that has permeated this letter from the very beginning. And he's been counseling these believers who have been dealing with persecution. In the midst of this reminder, he's going to leave these followers and leave us today that have been studying this book with certain and sure means, places that we can bank our life on and stand on that allow us to move forward in stability and strength and in a Christ-centered way. And there's two themes that kind of run through the last part of chapter 5 as Peter closes this. One is a call to be alert, to be aware of what's going on around us. And the second is to remind us that we face an enemy who is after us. And I just want to remind us this morning before we begin to walk through the text. Just before Jesus was arrested, um, Jesus had a conversation with Peter. And Peter at this time, um, there was a lot of pride that was there um, with him, that he was willing to die for Jesus verbally. But his choices um, share something else. But Jesus shared some very insightful words with Peter that I think he had to have in mind with him as he wrote um, chapter 5, verse 8 that we'll look at here in just a moment. Luke twenty two thirty one. this is what Jesus said to Peter. And I think anytime Jesus says our name twice, he's trying to get our attention. And so he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. And I was, I was thinking of that this week. I was thinking, God, can you imagine what it's like for Satan to come and say, hey, I want that person. And I, I, I want that person. I want to sift them like wheat. And, and Satan had made this request. He wanted Peter. I think he had an idea that there was something unique about this one who was called the rock. That he was going to be a leader. And so Jesus tells him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And here's the good side of this. He said, but Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's a good thing as well when Jesus is praying for you. But then Jesus says these words. He says, and when you have turned again, indicating what was Peter going to do? He was probably going to fall. He wasn't going to maintain the strength He says, and when you have turned again, this is what I want you to do, Peter. I want you to strengthen your brothers. And so we'll see in a moment in verse 8, he's going to talk about Satan as our adversary. Peter knew about this. Satan had wanted him, and Satan had had gone after him, and Peter had bought the lie. He had given into his flesh, and he had denied the Lord. The second thing that we will see today is this idea of being watchful, being alert, um, being aware of what is happening around us. Peter also knew about that as well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, at Jesus' highest and greatest hour, his hour of, of his biggest stress of being on earth, they go to the garden. Along the way, Jesus had been teaching them. They get to the garden. Not, uh, nine of them stay in one area. Three of them go a little bit further with Jesus. And Jesus tells them, I want you to stay awake and I want you to watch and pray. And I'm going to go on a little further and I'm going to seek the Lord. And so Jesus goes and he prays three times. And what do they do all three times? They, what? They fall asleep, right? And two of those times he tells them, he comes back and says, you guys are already asleep. Could you not stay awake for an hour and pray with me? And he says, you need to watch and you need to pray. And I think these things are in Peter's mind as he closes out chapter 5. And they were things that he had experienced himself and they were things that he had struggled with. And so as he is writing to persecuted believers who are wondering about the future, as he closes his counsel to them, he has those things in mind. So let's look this morning, verse 8 through 14. The end is here. Not the end of the world, but the end of our study. And we will see this morning that there's some great, great things here. So let's see the end of this letter. Verse 8. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then he has some final words to some companions and some people that he was with. And he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love and peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, y'all ready? Hey, are y'all ready? All right. Great, great things today. And I hope, I, my prayer is that our mind would be open, our heart would be open to what God has for us because these are some things that you can stand on no matter what happens and takes place um, in your life. So let's talk, first of all, this morning, I want to talk about the eternal family of God. And I don't want to talk about the first part um, of verse 8. I want to kind of go to uh, verse 9. If you'll go with me to verse 9, kind of the third part where it says the word knowing. And then also the first part of verse 10. And I want to kind of start with this because I think it kind, of, it kind of flows through this idea here. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. So there's that idea of suffering connected to the family of God, the people of God. And then verse 10, first part, and after you have suffered a little while. These two phrases, I think, connect and flow through the counsel that he's given as he closes um, this letter to these believers. One is, there is a family of God, and it's not a temporary family. It's not just an earthly family. This is an eternal family. The reality of what comes to this eternal family is, while on earth the world does not get God, the world does not love God, it hates Jesus, so therefore it's going to hate His people. So there's a perspective that those who know God and who've, who gather together as believers to walk in this life, they have to have a perspective. And so Peter established for them and reminds them, you are a part of an eternal family that's living on the earth, but it's headed to a new place. And so sometimes what happens in our lives is this. And I think we can all relate to this. Sometimes we go through certain things in our life, in an area of our life, and we feel like I'm the only one who is going through this. There can't be any other people who are wrestling with some of the things that I'm wrestling with. Some of that could be uh, parenting stuff, stuff with kids. Some of that could be a marriage. Nobody else has a marriage like I do. Nobody else has a spouse like I do and, and, and what I'm having to deal with that. Nobody has a dead-end job like I have. And I'm not going to be able to, to find any, any hope out of this. How, how, how am I going to retire with a job like I have? And, or sometimes it, it, somebody may think... Um, I just seem to be in this endless cycle of up and down of, of wrestling with anxiety and depression and, and I just feel like I'm the only one who's kind of dealing with this and am I ever going to find freedom from this? Or somebody may think, I've been longing for my spouse to come to faith and, and it just kind of feels like maybe you're the only one who has a spouse who doesn't believe. And sometimes we kind of feel like we're alone in this life and we're kind of wrestling with things. And Peter is writing to these believers who possibly are thinking, um, we, we've, we're having the worst of this from the hand of Nero. And we're kind of all alone with this. And yes, I have some other people that are kind of with me, but we're just kind of wrestling with us and struggling with this all alone. And Peter's reminding these believers, you are not alone. Throughout the whole world, these same kinds of sufferings, persecution for your faith, the wrestling with matters, there are believers everywhere that are dealing with this, and so you are not alone. And so he reminds them of this great reality. You know, I love the book of Hebrews, and there's a chapter that many of us love, and it's chapter 11. It's, that, it's the chapter where it speaks of all these great men and women of faith who had this, this love for God and this, and this passion for who He is. And coming out of that great chapter of all these who had great faith and they persevered on losing of their lives, he writes these words in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since there are people who've gone before us, who've had this great faith, and he says, he says, let's be reminded that we are not alone in this. There are those who walk before us and they've dealt with difficult things. We are dealing with difficult things. The writer of Hebrews writes to these believers later on that some of them had had their property confiscated. 
They had lost things. They had been in prison. And so there's a reality that, that those who, who received the letter of Hebrews um, had much in common with those who received this letter in First Peter. And he's reminding them, this is not anything new. You are not dealing with this all by yourself. Often in our lives, we try to keep um, our family, our children, um, all of this. And I think it's a natural desire for us. But we want everything to be safe and sanitized all the time. Do we not? We do. And I think it's a natural thing for our flesh because we don't want trouble. We don't want struggle. But I just want to remind us this morning. That when you come into a relationship with Jesus, this is not a promise that everything's going to be smooth the rest of your life. There are going to be wrestlings through, through this. Living in a broken world means that at times that brokenness is going to spill out and it's going to splash into the lives of our children and the lives of our marriages and our relationships and all of that stuff. And we need to, we need to be reminded that a broken world, we don't get to be safe and sanitized from that. We're going to experience that. So there's a perspective that we have to have that's critical as we face some of these things. So let me just remind us of a couple of, or several things in this. First is this, is Peter wants to remind us that we are a part of the eternal family of God. We're not, this is not a, this is not a club. This is not the Kiwanis club. This is not the boys club. This is not the YMCA. This is the family of God bought with the blood of Jesus. It's an eternal family. This eternal family has to have an eternal perspective that we are passing through this life. Peter tells them, okay, this after a little while, after you've suffered for a little while, okay, the God of glory Okay, he's going to lift you up. He's going to take care of you. And he, he reminds of, of that. And he says, listen, so this eternal family of God has to have an eternal perspective. Thirdly, is going to at times experience suffering in this life for faith. And sometimes, I don't know how it is with you, but I, sometimes I act shocked that there's been trouble that comes to us in our life. Jesus said this, John 16, 33. He said, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but I want you to take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus tells us, listen, this reality is going to come to you, but you need to be reminded, I've overcome the world, and if you belong to me, I'm going to bring you with me to where I am. And fourthly, under this first, first point here is, we need to remember that this suffering and experience in life is short in light of eternity. It is really brief. Peter, all through this, has been talking about the great things that are going to come at the revelation of Jesus. Just listen to a few of them. In 1 Peter 1, 7, that our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Verse 13 of chapter 1, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also re- rejoice and be glad when its glory is revealed. 1 Peter 5.1, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Chapter 5, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And here in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In case you, don't, in case you, were, you and I were to think, well, this is a dominant thing with Peter. Um, This idea of suffering for believers is all through the New Testament. Jesus actually said, hey, they persecuted the prophets before you. They're going to persecute you. And then Paul says these great words that give us some perspective. Listen to this, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, listen to what he says, are not worth comparing. Don't even take out a piece of paper and try to write what it's going to be like to go there because you can't even compare where we're going to what is here. Where we are going, we, cannot, we cannot even handle understanding where we're going. And the glimpse that we have been given to where we're going blows our mind and causes us to worship today. And so Paul says, For I consider, as I've thought about this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory 
that is going to be revealed in us. And so as he closes this letter, Peter wants to say to you and I and say to these believers that he originally wrote this to, I want to remind you, you're not a part of a club that's connected to earth. You are a part of a family. It's an eternal family. And everybody throughout the world is going through these realities that you are dealing with. So now what what I want us to look at is 8 and 9. And I want to talk about as he finishes that, this, he shares some essentials for how you and I ought to live our lives. Look with me in 8 and 9. Let's read it again. And then we're going to point out some really important things in here. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, he says. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. So coming out of verse 7, where he said, where Peter writes these words, he says, cast every bit of your anxieties on God, for He cares for you. But I want you to watch something. As we come to verse 8, watch what he does here. Christianity is not one of those things where you go, okay, I'm casting all my troubles on God, and so He's going to carry them. He's died for me, so I can just kind of sit back and be a couch Christian. And just kind of chill out, kind of relax. Not really anything I need to do. What Peter does here is this. You cast all, your, all the reality of persecution. You cast all your trouble. You cast it on God. Because that's where it belongs. It belongs with Him. Allow Him to carry that. Allow Him to carry you. And yet at the same time, there are some things that you are called to do. We are to work out our what? salvation so it's not okay i cast that i'm just gonna rest of my life it's gonna hang on and i'm gonna get to heaven one day and you know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna kind of chill out no there's a there's a, a war that you and i live in we are in a war and it's a pretty serious war with a real adversary so there are some essentials for living that peter says here cast your cares on the lord on all your anxieties on him because he cares for you and then he says here's what i want you to do the first thing he says is, you be sober-minded. This word sober-minded in the Greek means abstinence, to not be influenced by other things, to not be inebriated by the world where you're, you're buying into to what's there and it's influencing you um, from the outside and so you're not thinking clearly. Those who are drunk say things, do things, uh, participate in things because they're not in control of their mind and the decisions they're doing. They're being controlled by something that they've consumed. And so he's telling them in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of the world that hates God, in the midst of the world that hates you, and you know the reality of this, don't get caught up even in things that sound right, but they're not biblical. And then, again, I've talked in these days in the last several weeks, and I want to remind us this morning, our Western culture is permeated with things that sound Christian that upon close examination are an abomination. They have nothing to do with Christianity. And you and I have to have discernment as we listen to those things, even famous speakers, famous authors, all of those things. Every word I say need, you need to examine is Doke holding true to what the Scripture says. We, are got, we have got to be the kind of people where there's a clear-headedness about our lives, not influenced by anything other than the glory of Christ and the truth of Scripture. So Peter calls these believers to be sober-minded, that they're filled with the Spirit, alive in the Spirit, walking in the truth of God's Word, knowing God's Word. Um, this word, being sober, um, was used by Paul in 1 first, first Thessalonians 5, 6, 2 Timothy 4, 5, and Peter uses it three times and this carries the idea of you be clear-headed as you live this life so watch this he says so so in the midst of this you be sober-minded don't be influenced by things outside of God you be influenced by God then he says be watchful this word be watchful is used 20 times in the New Testament the majority of them come from the mouth of Jesus in the gospels so 20 times we were told to be watchful. This word means to arise or to arouse or to be watchful or to refrain from sleep, physical sleep. It's a call to not just lounge around and, and sleep, 
but to be aware of the world that we live in, to be aware of the culture in which we live in, be aware of the church, be aware of the family, be aware of friendships and relationships. And the idea is readiness. And so Peter's saying this, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And as you do that, I want to remind you, you have a clear-headedness about you. You do not get caught up in the ways of the world and thinking of the world and, 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 and the way the world pushes things. And as you do that, you also do this. I want you to watch. I want you to be watchful. I want you to be ready. And here's why you need to be ready, because you have an enemy. Back in medieval days, um, people had hawks, and they would train the hawks, and they would send them out. And, and the hawks would go out, and they would catch rabbits or squirrels, and they would bring them back to the owner so that they would have food. Now, sometimes the hawks would fly so high or they would fly to a distance that the human couldn't see it. And so the owner carried in a cage with him a bird called a shrike. And it was in a cage. The shrike hated hawks, incredibly scared of hawks. So the owner would come out, the hawk would be on its arm, It'd send the hawk out, the shrike would be there, set the shrike there, the hawk would go out, the hawk would disappear, and so the owner would look at the shrike and keep watch, and the shrike's head would constantly be doing this, because the shrike could see in the distance and knew exactly where the hawk was, and so the owner always knew where the hawk was in the direction, and I think you and I need to be just like that shrike. We need to be ready and aware, watchful, prepared, sober-minded, And the reason is, is because of what is mentioned in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful for this reason. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This word here is a military mindset. He is calling believers to have a biblical ministry or military mindset intelligence as we look at life and as we face things and as we deal with things let's deal with this word adversary the word adversary in the original greek meant an opponent in a lawsuit who brought a charge against someone um, that was an accusation that was not true but it was something that was slanderous so peter says listen you be sober-minded and watchful because you have an an enemy an adversary who's going to slander you and he's going to say things about you in certain aspects of our lives, um, we can choose our enemies. But if you're a Christian, if we, for those of us who are Christ followers, we don't get a choice in who our enemy is. It's, it's established. It's set in stone. It's Satan. He is our adversary. He's the one we fight against, and we have no choice in this. And ours, our adversary, our enemy, has a name called the devil, Peter says. The word here is diabolos. It comes from the Greek word diabolo, and it means one who throws across or casts across, throws out things in the direction of people, slander. In the classical Greek, it just meant to slander, accuse, and defame someone. And we know from what uh, Revelation 12.10 tells us, it says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, and the accuser of our brothers, He has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So Peter says, Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. But you be sober-minded and you be watchful because your adversary the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he's going to slander. He's going to speak. You see, the devil is the one who resists God in every turn. He resists God's people. He resists God's truth always. And you know, one of the big issues with him is he disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. Sometimes it's hard to discern if we don't know his word. So sometimes, again, that's why I, that's why I always... I'm going to call us. That's why the elders here at the church are always going to call us. That's why members of the church are going to call one another. We're going to call one another to know the truth because the only way we can discern the truth is to know the truth. You probably heard this before. You know how um, they train bank tellers to know counterfeit money? They don't give them counterfeit money. They give them what kind of money? Real money. 
And so they're able to know what the real thing is. And you and I have got to know the real truth of God's Word. And then we have an ability through the Spirit to discern what's coming to us. Now, I love lions. They're my favorite animal. Um, But listen to what Peter does here and he describes. He says, your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. The Greek word for roaring lion is an animal that's, that is roaring and making noise because it's hungry. It says, listen, Satan's prowling around and he is always hungry, always wanting to eat, always wanting to devour, and he is like this. Now watch what Satan does. Listen to me. What he cannot accomplish in our lives through enticement and allurement to make something look really good, he will try to do this. He will roar to intimidate. And when you and I are intimidated, fear enters our lives and fear immobilizes us. So Satan has two great tactics, always opposing the truth of God. And he does it through enticement. Hey, 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 go for that sin. It's going to be awesome. Go for it. Go for it. And then we do it. And he goes, oh gosh. He becomes the accuser. A Christian would never do that. A Christian would never. And he accuses and he slanders. So sometimes he, he allures and then sometimes he roars because if he can establish fear in our lives, can he not have a great victory? He can. If you've lived there, you know that. Sometimes there's just a fear about an uncertain reality about things and it just keeps us stuck in a place. And I tell you, lions use the roar as a strategic weapon. Now, I, I like lions in cages. I don't want to be somewhere where they're roaming free um, unless I'm, I'm in a cage, I guess. Um, and they use the roar in a powerful way. Adult lions weigh about 600 pounds and they stand about four feet high and the shoulders, that include how tall their head is. They can run with each bound 20 feet, and they can run 100 yards in five seconds. And so I think it's, it's very important for us to notice that the Spirit wanted Peter to write that Satan's like a lion. That he's, he, in a sense, is the king of the jungle, and he is intimidating, and he is powerful. And it's important for us to see it. And it says this, that he is seeking This word means to go and search for. The word devour here in description of him means to swallow, drink down, or gulp down. Watch this. Listen to me, folks. He's not just wanting to put a paw on us. He's wanting to swallow us up. Swallow our families up. Swallow our holiness up. And while Jesus came to save sinners, Satan desires to devour the saints. And so that's why Peter is saying, hey, even in the midst of persecution, you be sober-minded. Don't get caught up in the ways of the world. Don't get caught up in things that aren't truthful. You be watchful because there's an enemy who's an adversary. He's a slanderer. He's an accuser. He's roaring. He's prowling. He's seeking. And he wants to swallow you up. And I want to remind you and I that even in the midst of that, we have an advocate. Listen to this. John writes in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So even in the midst of that, I want to remind us, we have an advocate that we can run to. So we need to be aware of the enemy. Um, so these essentials, you be sober-minded, you be watchful, you be aware of the enemy, and then he says this, and then you've got to resist the enemy firmly. Look at verse 9. So resist him, firm in your faith. So Peter takes the next step, and he says, listen, this is really important. Go back to um, chapter 5, verse 6, just for a moment, on the same page there. We looked at this last week. He said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And I probably should have put five with it. Um, Look at the second part of verse five. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Then he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And I want you to listen to this. This I think this is really critical. I think the aspect of humility and God opposes the proud 
was written before he talks about standing in your faith, firm, resisting Satan. You'll see this if you turn on Christian television. You will see pastors who are wrong counseling people to talk to the devil and to fight the devil toe to toe. There are times that we have to do that. Jesus did that. But there's times that there's counsel out there today that just talks about Satan and all of this. We, we go back to Genesis 3. How often should we talk to Satan? Not much, should we? There comes a time when we say something to him, but it's not our words that we speak. Whose word do we speak? God's word. So we don't, we don't engage in this long conversation. We stand firm, watch this, in what has already been done. Listen to what Peter says. Listen, your adversary, the devil, prowls around roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour, so you resist him. How in the world do you resist him? I think you do this. I think we stand right here. Because at the cross, Satan was defeated, sin was defeated, and so we stand firm in our faith that it's not grounded in what we have done, it's grounded in what he has done. So we stand here, and if we have to speak to him ever, we speak the word to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm standing on this. I'm standing in the truth of what has been done. I'm standing in the truth of what has already been said and established as the truth. We are to be unyielding when temptation comes our way. And this mandate is to resist Satan. And I believe it comes, watch this, after humbling ourselves before the Lord so that at the proper time, even in the midst of the battle, He will exalt us. He will raise us up at the right time. So I think humility, because God opposes... Listen, God opposes the proud every single time. So we should never say, oh, I can handle Satan. (laughs) Really? No, we can't. But Jesus can, and He already has. So we stand firm in our faith, watch, that rests in the blood of Jesus and what He has already done. This word firm here means to take a stance against someone, so we do. So again, we cast our cares on Him. We stand firm in what has been done. We know the truth. We trust in what is there. And it's the idea here, this word, this word firm. If you go back to your movie days that we've seen, you ever seen a Roman army in a movie? And they step forward and they've got shields and they put all the shields together and they all line up together and they form a front. That's what this word literally means in the Greek. It's a picture of that the people of God come together based in what Jesus has done on the cross. We take up our shield of faith. We unite it together and hold it together. So when he shoots the flaming arrows, they land on faith that is resting in what Christ has done. And that's where the ground is that we stand. We're not to stand anywhere else. We're not to stand in something that's outside of what Christ has done for us. We stand in what he has done. Don't stand anywhere else. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 12, Revelations, Revelation chapter 12. And I want to show you how do we stand at the cross? How do we stand and resist him? It's a great counsel here. I just read verse 10 a while ago, but we're going to put verse 11 with it. There are three tools of the trade in how we take our stand against our adversary, the devil. Revelation 12, 10, and 11, and then we'll go back to 1 Peter. John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they conquered him, the thrown down one. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now I I just want to pause for a moment. Let me give you, when we stand here and we resist temptation, slander, what are we standing in when we stand here? firm in our faith here's what we do 
Revelation 12.11 teaches us that we are standing in the blood of Jesus. They overcame Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb. So we stand in that His blood, that His death, the cross, has given to us freedom, hope, salvation, grace, mercy, tenderness, all of these incredible things. So the first weapon in our resistance and standing is we just proclaim the blood. And I don't know what the outside world thinks of us. Man, you Christians are crazy. Y'all talk about blood and death all the time. Yeah, we do. And I love the blood of Jesus because without it, there's no hope today. We ought to go home right now. Just get in our cars and go home. Because without the blood of Jesus, there is no hope. There's no heaven. There's no promise of eternal life. There's no freedom in this life. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and listen to this, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We resist him by standing in the blood. Secondly, we resist him by the word of our testimony. That's what verse 11 says there. We give testimony to the risen and victorious Jesus through our changed lives, and we also do it just through our proclamation and trust in God's word. The third weapon that we stand in is this. You can take my life, but you can't take my Jesus, and you can't take my faith. And so it says there, they love their lives even unto death. They value Jesus more than their own physical lives. So the third tool of resistance is the weapon of a steadfast faith, trusting in God that no matter what comes, I'm going to trust in Him. Let me share this with you. Um, those of you who haven't had this experience yet, um, you will know this, but your kids eventually leave your house and, uh, and you kind of have a reflection through the tears of these people have gone. You kind of look at things. And so a few weeks ago as Haven was getting ready to leave and we were talking, Pam and I were reflecting over the last couple years in our life and it drifted our conversation to just think about what matters in our lives. And, and uh, I'm 53, but I'm young. I can outrun some of these people in this room. Some of you young people in here, I'm faster than you. Yeah, I am, Chad. I'm faster than you. We'll have a race one day. <clears throat> I have a young heart. My body's a little bit different sometimes uh, in regard to things, but I, um, I, don't, I, 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 I'm going to hang in here. And I'm going to follow Jesus and I want to walk with him. And, and Pam and I were just reflecting at the stage of life we were at. And, and she was talking about when she walked through cancer a couple years ago. And, and talked about that in the beginning of that, um, she'd get texts and calls. And it's not people from the church because I love our church. Our church was, our, our church, you guys love God's word. But she'd get stuff where people just had cute sayings. And not cute sayings like flippant, but just cute sayings to kind of um, help in the moment or whatever. And, and, and Pam said, I got to the point where I didn't want anybody to tell me anything but God's Word. I wanted them to point in God's Word and say to me that that's where I have to stand. That's where I have to trust. And I'm willing to die for it. I'm willing to bank my whole life on it. And I think that's where you and I have got to get in our lives. Where no matter what happens, we're not standing on what somebody out there is saying. We're standing on what's already been said. Listen to me. There's not going to be any new revelation about Jesus that's going to come in written form. It's been given to us already. God has already spoken. He's spoken. It's settled. It's sure. So we just stand on what's already said. And so three invincible weapons to deal with Satan. One is the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and we stand and be willing to lose our lives and maintain our faith. All right, let's go back to 1 Peter. Thirdly, this morning, is the enduring hope that changes everything. <clears throat> Has it been good so far this morning? It's going to get real good now. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist Him. Stand firm in your faith because you know this, 
that throughout the world, your brotherhood has been experiencing the same kinds of suffering. And then he says this. He says, I want to to give you a hope that endures everything. And he says these words. He says, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, not a little bit of grace, but the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself... He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. And he will establish you. To him be dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now watch this. There is an enduring hope that allows us to stand firm in the blood of Jesus knowing this great reality. And it's this. This is what he says here. He says, listen, I just want to remind you this. After you have suffered just for a little while, there's a God in heaven who died for you and you've come to know. And he has called you in a relationship with him. And he's going to call you to him. And you're going to live with him forever in heaven. So let's talk about this just for a moment. He's the God of all grace. He is the God of all grace. That means he has grace for any and every situation that you and I face and deal with. He has grace in, for things that are good. He has grace in persecution. He has grace in death. He has grace in marriage stuff. He has grace in parenting. He has grace in sin. He has grace with Nero. He has grace in dealings with the devil. He has grace in dealing with our career, wayward children, etc., etc., etc. He's the God of all grace. Grace is the Greek word charis, where back in the day, if I was really rich, the original meaning of the word grace, and I saw John Llewellyn one day, said that farmer man needs some help, he's my friend, and I'm just going to give out of my riches, and I'm going to give a free gift to John, not because he's done anything for me, but because I love John, I'm going to give him money, I'm going to give him possessions, and the Greeks called that grace, charis. And it was always connected friend to friend. 2,000 years ago, the New Testament church turned the word upside down. And they used grace to talk about that God who was perfect and loving and good and holy and merciful and awesome and majestic and loving. He gave everything that he had that was good to his enemies. And the church changed it. And grace meant this bestowing of gifts and beauty and treasure upon those who don't deserve it. So the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, this word call is a Greek word kaleo, and it means invitation. This God of all grace has invited you and I not to just know him here. He's invited us to be with him forever and ever in heaven. So the invitation is to the eternal glory in Christ. We are not meant for this world. We are meant for Him. And He is the place where we all long to be for truly everything that really truly matters is where He is. And our position today is we are in Christ. Where is Christ today? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So where are we today? Positionally, spiritually, we are seated in heavenly places in Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And there's nothing the enemy can do. There's nothing that the world can do. There's nothing that death can do that can separate us from this great reality. If you don't believe it, bank on this. Romans eight thirty five and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels rulers things present things to come powers height depth anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord now watch this and the God of all grace who has called you invited you to his eternal glory in Christ, in heaven, will himself, watch this, while you are living on earth, this is what he's going to do. Four things. He's going to restore you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to strengthen you. And fourthly, he's going to establish you. Let me give you the definition of these. This word, restore, in the ESV, is this word, Mark one nineteen, And going on a little further, 
He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. This word restore means to mend something. It can also mean in the Greek the setting of a bone that was broken and fractured. Now look, listen, look up here. I want you to listen to this. Sometimes in this life, this life's easy, right? Anybody agree that the life's easy? It's not easy. And so sometimes our life gets tattered a little bit. Um, I laugh at them all. You know, times have changed. Um, people love tattered jeans now. We, we spend $100 on jeans that have holes all in them. Um, and used to, we have to wear those for three years or four years to get them broken in like that. Now we buy them. But listen to what this word means. At times in our life, we are torn and tattered, and God uses a needle and a thread to stitch our lives into a place of wholeness. And the mending by God in the midst of the struggle that we face is always done for future use so that we can be used by Him. He mends us. That's what He says there. And the God of all grace who's called you to eternal glory in Christ, He will restore you. He will mend you. Secondly, He will confirm you. This is a word that means this, something solid as granite. The word comes from, from this. Listen to this, Luke nine fifty one. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up or to die, He set His face, set, this word set, set His face to go to Jerusalem, knowing what was going to happen in Jerusalem. It's that idea of He set in His mind what was going to happen. He was resolute in what was going to happen. He was fixed and He was unmovable. And that's what He says here. As we trust Christ in our suffering, He makes our feet immovable and strengthens us in such a way. And notice that God is committed to doing this in our life in the midst of the struggle. And sometimes it's just hard here, and God will do a work in the midst of that to not only stitch our lives to a place, but He will settle them on a place of granite. Thirdly, He'll strengthen us, and it just literally means He'll give us the strength that we need to deal with the things that come. That's what it means. And fourthly, He will establish you. This Greek word means to lay a foundation or to ground something secure. It's a little bit different than the... the uh, the, the granite aspect of things, because that talks about God's committed to seeing us grow in the midst of those things. This word establish or settle you is this. Matthew seven twenty four and following. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built a house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain rain fell, floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. See, in times, suffering in our lives will bring out the best of us. It will bring out the worst in us. It's just the reality of what's there. And when you and I trust, there's a deep settledness that comes in our lives where God establishes us, and He will lay a foundation. I talked about it last week. Remember Joseph, end of all through the last part of the book of Genesis? God used all that trouble to get him to the place where he was established, ready to lead and take care of the people of God. Sorry, Chad, I didn't mean to bother. Chad's upset because I told him I could run faster. Did he? <laughs> all right. A couple more things this morning. Peter gets to this point, and I think he can't control himself after verse 10. I think he's thinking, I live with Jesus here. I was with him for three years or so. I saw the resurrected Jesus. I saw him ascend in front of my eyes. I've now been walking with him for several decades. But I'm blown away by the reality that though this life is hard, He has called me to His eternal glory in Christ in heaven. And so He says these words, To Him be the dominion. I want His kingdom. I want His sovereignty. I want, his, I want everything about Him. I want, it to be, I want His dominion to last forever and ever. And Peter just stops here and just says, I just can't. It's called a doxology. And doxology is an affirmation of things that are true. And Peter just stops and says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. And he just, he's not even done and he has to throw an amen. He says amen and amen just means so be it. So be this true about the kingdom of God. So he says, so be it. I want his rule. So out of the pain and the persecution, out of heartache and tears, 
out of wrestling, out of the battle, comes the doxology often where we affirm the greatness of God and we worship Him. All right, let's close with this. Read 12 through 14 with me once more. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written um, briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, and peace to all of you who are in Christ. I love how this closes. You may say there's not a lot of truth, and there's a lot of truth in there. And the last point I want to make this morning is there's an enrichment of faithful companions that we surround ourselves with. And Peter mentions three of them there. Silvanus, who is he? This is the formal word of, a, of, of the name Silas. Acts 16 this week, who traveled around with Paul? Silas. Who at midnight worshipped the Lord in the Philippian jail and the Philippian jailer came to faith? Silas was. It's likely, we believe, that this probably is Silas. And he's with Peter. And he's written down these things that Peter has communicated. And he's written them down. So Peter's surrounded by Silas. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, most likely this is the church at Rome. Early church called Rome Babylon uh, because of the power where Nero was. So this is probably the church at Babylon. Peter probably is there, um, a part of that church, and says, listen, this church sends you guys in Asia Minor, sends you greetings, and so does Mark. Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. Peter plays a prominent role in that. And so um, they are together, and he has surrounded himself with faithful companions. All right, look up here. We're done. No more notes. It's over with. We started the third Sunday of January. We entitled this, A Hope That Changes Everything. A Hope That Changes Everything. And this is the hope that changes everything. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 He's talked to us here again about the enrichment of hope. That the God of all grace has called you and I to His eternal glory in Christ And so after we've suffered for a little while, we've got to remember that we are going. Can you not wait to get there? I cannot wait to get there to see King Jesus seated on the throne. I can't wait to gather with the nations and say, you are worthy to take the scroll. Blessed are you, for you are the one who was slain and brought people into the kingdom of God. We're going to get there one day. Got to live here for a while, but it's... It's going to be over like that. It's going to be over like that. And forever we will be with the one who called us to his eternal glory. And we ought to just want more and more of him. Isn't that good? It's been a great study. Great study of First Peter. All right, let's pray together.